0: This is Archive Atlanta, episode 13, Leo Frank. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, hope you're having a great week. By the time this episode is released, I will be in New Orleans for the weekend. My first time there which seems crazy because I have been living within driving distance for well over a decade, so there is no excuse. I've had so many people tell me how much I will love it because not only is it fun and it's beautiful, but it's full of history, which of course is my favorite thing. So I hope to post a little bit from the trip on um, Instagram, especially my Instagram stories. So if you are so inclined and you'd like to follow along, my handle there is at Archive Atlanta. Today, I finally get to tell one of the most important stories from Atlanta, and I realize that I tend to suffer from this affliction where I assume that everyone thinks like I do. <laughs> like, I cannot understand why anyone would be late to anything. And so when people are late, it just kind of blows my mind. And I do the same thing with history in the sense that I assume everyone knows the, quote, big stories, right? You know, oh, I'm not going to do an episode on that. Everybody knows about that. But if there's one thing this podcast has taught me, is that I cannot look at the stories of Atlanta as being too big or too overdone, because there is guaranteed to be someone out there that's never heard of it. And this is the category that I've been putting the Leo Frank case into. I thought, oh, everyone knows about that. But then I realized they don't. So this week, I'm excited to share it with you guys. When you tell a story or even set out to learn about something, I think the first thing you have to do is understand the climate. And I don't mean the weather. (laughs) Whether it's what's going on politically, socially, or economically, all of that information sets the stage. Our thoughts um, or actions as people are tied into what we see, where we live, how we grew up, and that's a lot more than we even imagine. My goal recently with the podcast has been to make a better effort to incorporate more of that into every episode, so I think it's especially important with this story of Leo Frank. In 1913, Atlanta is only 50 years out of the Civil War, and there's still huge resentments between North and South. I talked about this before, but the South still lagged economically behind the rest of the country. As Georgia's economy transitions from agrarian to industrial, factories are booming. Um, and from 1900 to 1905, manufacturing in Atlanta increased by 75%. That's five years, 75%. Northern businesses and businessmen were moving down south, profiting from these businesses. And this is where we get that term carpetbaggers which was generally a term applied to any northerner who was living in the South during the Reconstruction era, but they use that term um, past that time as well. Working conditions in these factories are rough, and as we learned in episode 10 about the Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill, there is rampant child labor issues. Georgia's child labor standards were actually among the nation's worst. Most of the other southern states, I think they capped it at 14, but in Georgia, children can work as young as 10 years old. At the same time, the entire South has developed a certain feeling, if you will, about women. Southerners that longed for the times before the war, the, quote, Old South, they connected that time with women being pure and virtuous. A wife that stays home, takes care of the house and the garden, and this is really where that whole Southern Belle thing comes from. And where this comes into conflict is that after the war, women outnumber men because, as I've said before, most of them died in the war. And so women are forced to work um, to take care of their families. So this reality of the working woman contrasted so greatly with this ideal of the southern belle. I think their brains were just exploding. So this is really where you see that time when kind of any offense against a woman like rape or impropriety was dealt with vigilante mobs and lynching. And even the KKK at that time had an oath that included a sentence about special protection for female friends. Jews began to immigrate to Atlanta almost immediately after Atlanta formed, even back when it was Marthasville, but it really boomed between 1850 and 1910. In the 60 years, we went from 26 Jews to (laughs) 4,000, so quite a lot. And by 1910, um, Jewish Atlantans are making up 2.6% of the city's population. Around the same time, there was a fear of change. Industrialization, technology, social change. It was basically making people nervous. And that nervousness gave rise to the populist movement. Georgia had its populist hero, Tom Watson, who by 1910 was a strict believer in black disenfranchisement, anti Catholic views, and preached the evils of northern capitalist influences that were changing traditions. And most of these successful northern businessmen were Jewish. The rhetoric was that Jews were financially exploiting farmers and laborers and the poor people of Georgia. Now, can we just take a minute to let the modern similarities sink in here? Um, We all know that line, history repeats itself, but it's not really lip service. It's the truth. And I understand when people aren't history lovers. I totally get it. But I think it's important that we understand that everywhere we are now, we've been before. And there are lessons to learn from those times. The people of the early 1900s South were scared. Their jobs were disappearing. They were lost to new technologies. Their way of life is changing. Social norms that they knew were slipping away. So what did they do? They clung to racist populism, <laughs> hating on Jews, Catholics, Northerners. And again, I don't intend to make this a political podcast, but knowing the past can make us change our future. Now that the stage has been set, and you guys have an idea of what was happening in and around Atlanta, let's get into more detail about Leo Frank's story. Leo was born in Texas, but moved to Brooklyn when he was just three months old. He graduated from New York City Public Schools and then went on to the Pratt Institute and then later Cornell for Mechanical Engineering. His uncle, Moses Frank, was a majority owner in the National Pencil Factory, which was in Atlanta, invited his nephew down south to check things out, so to speak. Frank accepted a position at the company and became superintendent of the pencil factory in 1908. Leo marries Lucille Selig in 1910, and this was kind of a good social move for him. She was from a very prominent Jewish family, and so the marriage definitely secured his rising status in the community, especially... As an outsider, not born in Atlanta. They lived in a home at 68 Georgia Avenue, which is part of the Summerhill neighborhood. And I know I always talk about tangible, but of course their house is no longer there. There is a commercial building in its place. And until very recently, it had a plaque on it actually explaining the site's significance and the story of Leo Frank. If you haven't been to Summer Hill recently, it's completely different. It's in the midst of a huge overhaul, very exciting overhaul, but still a lot of changes going on. So the sign has been taken down, but I do hope that they plan to reinstall the sign or just something new to explain to future generations. The National Pencil Factory stood in downtown Atlanta. I think it was 34 Forsyth Street. Um, And it's not there anymore, again. But it stood where the Sam Nunn Federal Building is today. So it's a very nondescript section of downtown. Um, But if you see pictures, you can compare. It did just what the name implies, make pencils. Uh, Most ended up in five and dime stores like Woolworths. um, But some even went specifically to private customers like Cadillac. Little Mary Fagan was 14 years old. She was born in 1899 into a family of tenant farmers, and her father died before she was born. The family moved to Marietta, East Point, and then when her mother remarried, they moved to Atlanta in 1912. Mary would go on to get a job at the National Pencil Factory, where she would earn 10 cents an hour operating machine that inserted the rubber erasers into the tips of pencils. Her work week was 55 hours long. Remember, I talked about this before, um, but this was a hard, hard life for very young children. On April 26, 1913, Confederate Memorial Day landed on a Saturday, which made the holiday even bigger. A yearly parade took place in Atlanta that would march through the streets, and they would actually finish at the Confederate Obelisk, which is in Oakland Cemetery. That is still there. So you can see it. It's over near the Confederate graves. Also, a little side note, Confederate Memorial Day is still a state holiday here in good old Georgia. And it was called Confederate Memorial Day until 2015 um, when the governor changed the name to, say, state holiday. But it's still there. So anyway, not to go too far off on a tangent, um, but we still essentially celebrate Confederate Memorial Day. Mary Fagan is planning to enjoy the parade, but first she wants to stop by the pencil factory to pick up her last paycheck. There had been a little shortage of orders, and she hadn't worked in the last week, so I think her paycheck was like a dollar and ten cents or something. She met with Leo Frank in his office, took her paycheck, and he would be the last person to see her alive. Her body was found by the night watchman, Newt Lee, at 3 a.m. Newt was making his way to the bathroom, which was in the basement, via lantern, when he stumbled upon a human form. Mary Fagan's skull was dented and caked with blood, and a piece of rope was wrapped around her neck. The murder outraged the citizens of Atlanta. I mean, our culture in 2018 is obsessed with anything and everything murder related. All you can do is check the most famous Netflix specials or the most popular podcasts. So just imagine a child murder in 1913 in Atlanta was just as sensational. But what made it even worse was that the climate really fueled this story because child labor had been at the forefront of the social ails in the city that year. Atlanta's mayor at the time he threatened police with their jobs if they did not find the murderer. Now, I don't want to get into every minute detail of this crime, and believe me there are numerous other resources that have done this. My favorite book that I read a few years ago is called And the Dead Shall Rise by Steve Oney. This is 700 pages of narrative and notes. Everything you could want to know. I have a link to that in the show notes if anyone is interested. But my hope today is just to give you enough of the story to pique your interest, whether you want to read 700 pages about it, whether you want to take a tour, or just even visit these sites. The most important thing for me is that the story just continues to be shared. With that disclaimer, in the two days following the murder, four men were arrested with the suspicion that they committed the crime. The night watchman, Newt, Another was an ex streetcar driver. Um, one was a bookkeeper at the factory, and the last was an unnamed African American man. There was an angry white mob ready to lynch Newt Lee, who was black, but detectives kept them at bay. Leo Frank was immediately questioned after Mary's body was found, since he was the last to see her alive, and detectives didn't really like Frank's demeanor or nervousness he was just generally acting a little weird um i don't you know you can read about whether that's just the way he always was or he was acting specifically strange that day but they determined that they just didn't like it um, and he continued to be a person of interest almost a week later a sweeper at the factory named jim conley was found trying to rinse out a bloody shirt in the basement he was then arrested Over the month that passed, the two main suspects um, were narrowed down to Leo Frank and Newtley. By the end of May 1913, it would take a grand jury 10 minutes to indict Leo Frank for the murder. Hugh Dorsey was the prosecuting attorney, essentially building the case against Leo Frank, and then Frank would go on to hire two attorneys, Luther Rosser and Reuben Arnold. The trial would begin on July 28th, and it would go on for 25 days. And like I said earlier, you could fill a book with the details of each day, the witnesses, the testimony. Um, there was handwritten murder notes. There's even human excrement that'll lure you to read more about it. But the one thing that stuck out for me is that this is the heat of a Georgia summer with no air conditioning. The courtroom is packed to the gills. There are crowds that would gather outside the courtroom every day just to hear what was going on. Um, and then I learned that the federal courthouse that's downtown, that was just being built. So they were in the older courthouse, but the new courthouse was kind of like the bare bones of the structure, and people would climb up there to sit to see into the, into the courtroom. In the closing arguments, Frank's lawyers would argue that Leo was being persecuted for his religious beliefs, as had happened to other prominent Jews before him. Jim Conley was the true murderer, they believed. Now the jury deliberated for just a few hours and came back to announce that Leo Frank was guilty he was sentenced to be hanged on October 10th for the murder of Mary Fagan. His defense team immediately files three appeals to the Georgia Supreme Court and then two more to the United States Supreme Court. Nothing worked. They did manage to keep getting Leo Frank's sentence moved, and so his hanging would be pushed back over and over. With no other hope, Arnold and Rosser appealed to the governor and sought a commutation from Governor John Slayton. Now, what you have to understand is that time has passed since the trial, and that populist guy I mentioned earlier, Tom Watson, well, he published a newspaper called The Jeffersonian, which had really led the anti-Leo Frank campaign. Basically, almost every resident in the state believed Frank was guilty and wanted to see him dead. So Governor Slayton understood this, he knew it was a big decision to commute his sentence, and he really took his time. Um Here's a good time to mention that Slayton was a actually a prominent attorney before becoming governor, and he kind of did his own little investigation. He read 10,000 pages of notes, visited the murder scene... Um, The judge who had formally sentenced Leo Frank actually told the governor he had doubts and that he should commute a sentence. And then Jim Conley's own attorney at this point had become convinced that his client was guilty and he also urged Governor Slayton to commute Leo Frank's sentence. Slayton came to the conclusion that Frank was innocent, and a few days before the very end of his governor term, he would commute his sentence to life in prison. So that was it. He didn't say you're free to go. He just said instead of being hung, you have to spend your life in prison. But the plan behind this was it would keep Leo alive so that he could have some more time to prove his innocence. He was then transferred from the Fulton County Prison to a prison farm in Milledgeville, kind of in middle Georgia. Um, and then the idea was just to get him out of Atlanta because he knew that mob violence was going to happen. Now, when the governor did this, riots did break out in Atlanta. Angry mobs marched to the governor's mansion, which at the time was actually in Ansley Park. And Slayton had to declare martial law and actually call in the National Guard. When his term ended, he and his wife boarded a train left Georgia, and didn't come back for 10 years. During his few months at the prison farm, Leo Frank was actually attacked by an inmate who slashed his throat. Miraculously, he survived, but, you know, we can all make our assumptions about whether that was a planned attack or not. In August of 1915, 25 armed men gathered in Marietta, Georgia, and they called themselves the Knights of Mary Fagan. They set out in a caravan of eight cars and headed for the prison where Leo Frank was being held. In the early hours of the morning, they broke into a state prison. Well, let me repeat that. They broke into a state prison, undetected, after cutting the electricity to the building. That doesn't sound suspicious at all to me. How about you? (laughs) So they dragged Leo Frank out in his nightshirt. No guards. No one said anything. They put a loosely tied rope around his neck. The caravan headed back to Marietta. They reconvened in Frey's Gin, which is the area now that's like right across from the big chicken. If you don't live in Georgia, you can be like, what the hell is she talking about? (laughs) There's a giant wooden chicken in Marietta um, at a big intersection. And so Frey's Gin is right there. So these men took Leo Frank out of the car, tied him to a tree, stood him on a table, and then kicked the table out. The entire time, he maintained his innocence, and his last request was that his wedding ring be given back to his wife. Leo Frank's body hung there for a few hours. Soon, thousands began to crowd around to see his body, and a photograph was taken that was later sent as souvenir. His body was taken down and sent to be embalmed, which I found fascinating because Jewish tradition doesn't really do embalming, Um, but I think the idea was that they wanted to get his body to New York so his mother could see him. He was buried in Brooklyn, New York. Because of this historic photograph, we have knowledge of who was there, and over the years there have been about 29 people that are confirmed to be involved. What I hope you find as appalling as I do is that these men were prominent citizens of Marietta, and not just citizens, elected officials. The leaders and planners, as they were called, were made up of superior court judges, attorneys, and even a governor. Joseph Brown was governor of Georgia just before John Slayton. If you're familiar with Marietta, the Brumby chair factory may sound familiar. Well, Bolin Brumby was one of the ringleaders too. The man who owned Frey's gin, William Frey, he was sheriff of Cobb County. And he's been determined to be the person that actually looped the rope around Leo's neck. I guess it doesn't surprise me when I learned that just weeks after Frank's death, the state prison in Milledgeville was awarded $30,000 from the legislator to build a new wing. John Dorsey, chairman of the House Penitentiary Committee, was one of the lynching masterminds. Months after the lynching, these Knights of Mary Fagan would climb to the top of Stone Mountain to light a cross and give birth to the second iteration of the Ku Klux Klan. What I did not know was that the Anti-Defamation League was also created in response to Leo Frank's murder to protect um, the Jewish people of America. Sometime in the 1980s, the state of Georgia officially pardoned Leo Frank, um, but the way they phrased it was, you know, we, we still don't know if he's innocent, but basically we failed to protect his rights. I think the reason this story is so important for me to keep telling is because it can show us what fear does. Fear of people who are different from us, fear of the unknown, fear of change. We can switch out the characters and the stories like, and this still happens today. We love to think that we've come this really long way, but we just bombed a synagogue. It's 2018. (laughs) So there you have it, the story of Leo Frank. I know there's not much in terms of tangible places, but you can visit, um, like I said, the places where things used to be. When it does come to cemeteries, though, I got you covered. Mary Fagan is buried in the Marietta City Cemetery. Governor Slayton is buried at Oakland. Hugh Dorsey is buried at Westview, along with Lucer Rosser. There's a, actually a historical marker in Marietta at the site where Leo Frank was lynched, if you want to go out and visit that. Now, is it just me, or is that really heavy? Because I feel like I should be telling a joke or something right now. Instead, I'm going to thank you for listening as a whiz, and continue to ask that you share this podcast with others, your friends, your family, Please leave a rating or a review on iTunes. It makes it easier for people to find. And last but not least, have a great weekend, and I'll talk to you guys next week.